0: We fall, we break, we fail. But then we rise, we heal, we overcome. I choose to live by choice, not by chance. To be motivated, not manipulated. To be useful, not used. To make changes, not excuses. To excel, not compete. I choose self-esteem, not self-pity. I choose to listen to my inner voice, not the random opinions of others. I choose to do the things others will not, so I can continue to do the things others cannot. Fate whispers to the warrior, you cannot withstand the storm. The warrior replied, I am the storm.
1: This is Doc's Daily Dose. And you are a warrior. Before we jump into this episode, quick disclaimer I messed up. It wasn't intentional, but I should have asked. This is an interview of cat and cat is non-binary. So cat prefers the pronouns they them. I wasn't aware of this, but I also didn't ask. And so in my intros and outros before the actual interview, I refer to Kat as she. And so my apologies, Kat. I should have asked. I'm still getting used to posing that question because it's just something that uh, I didn't grow up with. And I know that that's new in our world. And I have to respect that. I have no issue with asking. I just need to be better about it. And during the interview, it's not an issue because I refer to Kat by their name. Cat. But in the intros and outros, I tried to go back in and parse out where I used the pronoun she or her and slip in they or them. And it just didn't really work. It destroyed the message. It sounded piecemealed and chopped together. And when I did those intros and outros, I was heartfelt and genuine and sincere in what I said. And I didn't want to go back and try to repeat those things in a way that sounded scripted. I wanted to be from the heart, which is what it was. So just a full disclaimer, in order to respect Kat's wishes, as well as everyone's wishes in terms of the pronouns they use, anytime you hear her or she, it should be they or them. All right, on to the episode. Welcome to Doc's Daily Dose. I'm your host, Coach Doc. You know, sometimes when you have a conversation with someone, it just hits a little different. And that's what I got to experience in conversing with Kat. To give you a little background... I got to know Kat through our interaction on social media platforms as she is one of the Supernatural family and just seeing her dedication and commitment to continue to show up for herself and show up for others in the community and this very vibrant presence and appearance and this huge smile. I wanted to know who Kat was, what she was all about, and she didn't disappoint in terms of meeting my intrigue. I didn't set any expectations, but the level of curiosity was so high. And I'm so glad that I reached out to her and had a conversation. To give you a little idea of who Kat is, but I'm going to let her tell a lot more. Kat's 42. She is a therapist. And she dealt with a lot of trauma growing up with a rough childhood, as well as dealing with an eating disorder. And as she has gone through this journey of recovery and coming out on the other side... And maybe that's me speaking for her because I was so impressed by just who she is as an individual and what she's been through. But in my eyes, as coming out on the other side, she now helps people specifically in that space navigate those murky waters. And I really hope that people take a listen to this one because she dropped some truth bombs and some aha moments, including something that made me feel a certain way during the interview, but then made me act after editing it. So, Kat, share your brilliance with the world, please.
2: On the podcast today is Kat. Cat, how are you doing?
3: I am okay today. Um, I'm up in the Pacific Northwest, and it's actually really chilly up here, which I'm enjoying. Yeah.
2: So right off the bat, I just loved your answer to that because typically people just just like, I'm doing great. I'm wonderful. And you're like, I'm okay today. Do you commonly get that, you know, kind of like, oh, you're okay today? Or is that a common thing for you to say?
3: depends on the context you know I'm aware I'm being interviewed for a podcast so I try to give sort of like the most honest answer for the context (laughs) I love it Um, yeah I'm going through some stuff so I'm okay I'm sort of like I'm fine on a macro level right I'm really I'm really um gracious and grateful to be okay on a macro level and there's some stuff going on in my life right so if I answered like, I'm great today, Antonio, that would be not true.
2: Yeah, it'd be a lie, yeah.
3: Right, exactly. But I'm also like, I'm okay, I'm surviving, I'm thriving out here in my life, even when things aren't going well. So I think okay is a pretty honest answer.
2: Beautiful. So yeah. I already know this is gonna be awesome, just honesty <laughs> I love it. So you dealt with some struggles as a child and the way it manifested itself for you was a binge eating disorder. Can you describe what that disorder is and kind of how yeah. food was a comfort for you?
3: Absolutely. Yeah. And just the name, it wasn't even really talked about as a, as a disorder back then, right? So I'm 42. So we know so much more now than we did then. So for me, you know, I think I discovered pretty young. I think I might have been five, uh, five years old or so when I started binging. And again, it wasn't called that necessarily, but just eating large quantities of what are highly palatable foods, right? So like cheeses and fried foods and dessert foods. I just noticed, right, that how sedated I felt right after eating that large quantities of those foods and that was helpful to me because I I had a really difficult experiences uh difficult experience growing up really hard childhood and so a lot of trauma and so you know discovered okay if I eat this much food I get I feel tired I don't feel feelings right and it wasn't like conscious but it was just sort of like okay well that's helpful isn't it let's keep doing that So, again, it wasn't like an active choice. I don't know if all children are sort of able to make that connection consciously, but it was more like, okay, this is what works, to sort of soothe those difficult feelings I was having, the pain that I was in.
2: Now, right after eighth grade, so middle school, it sounds like from what you're prepping for this interview that you did start to make the connection and you realized something needed to change. What was the catalyst to that realization? How did you make that connection?
3: Well, there are a couple of pieces back then sort of putting myself in that spot, right? So not, not necessarily looking at it as an adult, but thinking about where I was then in eighth grade, part of it was to be real with you. I was bullied pretty harshly, you know, at school Mm -hmm. for my weight. And so I, you know, i had a lot of shame about my body and then also I did get medical news when I was in eighth grade. So I was 14 years old and I was told by my pediatrician that I had really high cholesterol. So it was over 200. I don't know the number. I can't, I don't remember. It was high. And, you know, my pediatrician was really concerned and said that, you know, my weight and my eating was putting, you know, my life at risk. And that's a shocking thing to hear when you're 14. So I think that was a big part of it too. and. You know, just, just was aware that I was really miserable. So sort of a a trifecta, right? I'm getting, I'm getting bullied and I had a lot of body shame for that, but then also hearing, gosh, it's not just peer pressure or just, or just body shame. It's also my eating and my weight is affecting my health in this pretty serious way. And then I am pretty miserable, right? Just my life and my feelings and and my home life was was making me sad and miserable. So I knew something needed to change.
2: Well, it's interesting. A lot of times when people go to therapy and they're dealing with certain things, and especially when you think uh, surrounding addiction in general, one of the things that therapists try to get them to do is to get out of their environment, to get away from triggers and see new things. And as an eighth grader or someone entering, getting ready to enter (laughs) high school, you said to yourself, I want to go to boarding school, when most kids would (laughs) dread that. Where in the world did that come from?
3: I know, and, you know, I do have to credit, you know, as much as, you know, my mom. Rest in peace, Macy. rest in peace. Um, She had a lot of trauma and she was one of the people that, you know, was traumatizing for me. But she did herself get, she went to boarding school the last two years of high school. She had kind of like thrown it out there at some point as something that might be good for me. And I I was sort of like, wait a second, you know, I just was like, wait, I could get out of this situation. You know, I had some kernel of resilience in me. I mean, I think that's how I even made it, to be honest with you, how I even made it to that age without harming myself for taking my life, and so I did have this of resilience, and so I thought to myself, if there was a way, right, that I could actually go to boarding school, what if I just asked, right, what if I just asked, and so that's what I did. And yeah. your
2: parents made that happen for you, and now while you were at boarding school, you met somebody by the name of Kim when you were a freshman. Yeah. Tell, tell us about Kim and how this encounter kind of
3: changed your life. You know, I'm getting chills as you say that and it makes me feel like, God, I wanna find her. You know, I can still in touch with my boarding school. I'm coming up on my twenty fifth reunion and I'm like, I wonder if we could like put me in touch with Kim but anyway, yeah, Kim was my I dorm totally mother. think
2: you I totally think <laughs> you should find
3: her. <laughs> I know, I'm just, I wonder if I could find her. I could at least ask my boarding school and they could find out if Kim is open to it. She was my dorm mother my freshman year. That you know, that just means what it means, right? Like she's in charge of making sure we don't break rules and and you know, that we're safe in our dorms and everything. And I don't remember exactly how it got started, but she used to go power walking in the mornings. And she was just this really lovely, pretty soft-spoken lady. And I honestly, I, I don't remember how it started, but I just started walking with her in the mornings. And I have this vivid memory of walking with her, like, before the sun was up and started power walking with her around campus. And we had, like, a three-mile uh, loop around our campus. That kind of just started it. And I think part of the reason I kept walking with her is that we talked. You know, we would just walk and talk. And she was just this lovely adult who would just listen and, and talk with me. And she was super kind and generous with her time and non-judgmental. Like, I don't remember her ever making comments about my weight or anything like that. I mean, it's just sort of like, let's walk and talk, you know.
2: And that that led for you, and I'm I'm assuming she might have been someone who kind of maybe uh opened that door for you. But it led for yeah. you doing something pretty amazing your freshman year. Um, and having kind of this breakthrough moment. Talk to me about that.
3: Oh, are you talking about the my first endurance event? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So she was also part of that. So she asked if I wanted to, and I think there were some other students, because at boarding school, well, my boarding school, I can't, I don't know about all boarding schools, we did like student activities off campus. And so there were some students signing up to do this 20-mile fundraising charity Walk for Hunger, it was called, which now looking back, I'm like that's ironic but um yeah I mean, like, oh, that's kind of funny like, she asked because we were doing all this you know we we're doing like three miles a day a few days a week she's like would you like to do that with me do you want to raise money for this charity and do this end of the year charity walk and ended up doing it so I think that might have been in May probably May-ish or maybe April of my freshman year of high school and I completed it and I did a lot of that walk ended up doing a fair amount of it by myself you know based on my pace or whatever was happening yeah, it was incredible. And looking back, I'm kind of like, how on earth did I, I – mean? right? I mean, knowing from whence I came and it was just a year in um, to being away from my my home life, it really was a radical shift.
2: Now, besides Kim, there were a list of others who you <laughs> yeah. mentioned that nurtured your brilliance and kind of helped you discover it for yourself. Tell me the importance of a support system in your journey.
3: I honestly do credit, you know, these teachers that I mentioned you know, I had these adults come into my life in boarding school where, you know, I don't understand. It's almost still to this day, even though I'm 42 and I'm I'm someone who's a mentor myself, it's still hard for me to comprehend just the generosity of their time that they spent with me. These, these are adults who spent time with me outside of class, just walking around campus or like talking, you know, in their classroom or talking in the cafeteria with me. You know, I will say I was a pretty damaged kid, right? I had a lot of stuff going on. I need a lot of help. And they just were so kind and patient. It completely altered the course of my life, not only to have people just talk to me and be sort of mentors to me as a human, but also I think Mrs. Reggio in particular was my freshman year English teacher who saw me as a really smart person. I had some inklings that I might be good at writing before Mm -hmm. I, I got into boarding school, but she was really instrumental I think in turning around my self-concept and she really pushed me to see like no you're actually like a really smart person and I really did not see myself that way before I went to boarding school I had very low self-esteem and I thought I was probably dumb probably stupid like maybe could stake it with writing and convince people that maybe you know imposter syndrome stuff and she was really instrumental in starting to change my self-concept that like mm, maybe Katie's smart were giving me constant like validation and praise and love they weren't like blowing smoke up my ass right like it wasn't like right. that I feel like people were also holding me accountable you know my advisor in particular Ms. Schneider who was my advisor for the entire four years of my, my boarding school she was someone who I think would also talk to me about like hey this classroom behavior is distancing to your peers right so she would sort of like notice if you know because I was I really wasn't well socialized when I got to boarding school, and she, she was someone who was also very lovingly direct to me about sort of like, hey, I don't think this is quite working with your peers. It was just really good surrogate parenting. That's sort of how I felt about the whole experience.
2: No, I, I had a very similar experience the senior year of oh. high school when when my dad ended up being locked up for my entire senior year. There was just one oh, wow. specific teacher and coach who was just—I mean, my my dad literally thanked him uh, when he came home for acting as you know surrogate father. And it's it's one of the things I struggle with uh, working in education now, and I've worked in schools for a long time and seeing the shift from. Teachers who knew the subject matter they were teaching was important, but not as important as the human beings they were cultivating, where now you see a lot of teachers, three o'clock comes, and they're right out of the door, and so that's tough, but... I want to loop back around to the endurance athlete thing for a yeah. second because in asking about your support system and you talked about teachers and mentors, sponsors, therapists, coaches, and and uh, close friends, you also specifically talk about a marathoner's mindset for life. I did. <laughs> what yeah. is a? Ma- I, I've never ran a marathon. I know what an athlete what? mindset is or a football <laughs> mindset. No, I would I would never run. <laughs> kidding me? If oh, there's never if there's can no,
3: never. Come on. no
2: never if there's can no ever. ball. If there's no ball or no op- opponent in sight, then like, ah, I don't know.
3: <laughs>
2: But what is a marathoner's mindset? What does that mean?
3: So I trained for my first marathon in my 20s, and I've done two. And I, I will say I don't know if I need to do any more. But um, <laughs> tr- the training for the first one was, was also life-changing, and I, I relate it very much to what I feel like rec- recovery in general feels like to me, which is, you know, what I think of as a as mindset is you're always taking it one step at a time. And if, if you try to think about I only have five miles left or I only have 10 miles left or, oh, God, I have 17 miles left, that will end your marathon. That will end your race. What I really learned training for a marathon is that what do you need to do in this moment to make this moment enjoyable to you and to get through this moment of your marathon? So a lot of it was meant a lot of mental tricks to make this moment mm-hmm. enjoyable, to calm your mind if you happen to be in some amount of pain, to possibly alter your expectations moment by moment. You know, there were a lot of things. I was injured uh, right before my first marathon. I had an IT band injury, so I was running with a knee brace. So the constant sort of micro adjustments you have to make mentally and physically to get through 26.2 miles absolutely 100% translates into the rest of my life, being able to tolerate You know, my mom actually passed away two months after I ran my first marathon, and that was very unexpected and sudden. And Mm -hmm. I'm not going to say that I coped well with that. I'm not going to lie to you. But I will say that that mindset that I had trained for, you know, I do think, you know, I've been able to apply that mindset even in the depth of grief and even in the depth of really difficult relapses um, after her death, that there is a way, there's a way to get through this. There's, you know, there's another moment coming. There's another mile coming. There's a micro adjustment that I can make. If I constantly think that the prize is over there somewhere and I can't see it, right. Which is the 26.2 mile thing. It's over there. I can't see it. I will be miserable. I will be miserable right. because I can't see it. And it's impossible and it's out of sight. And it's a fantasy. One of my strategies still to this day, if I run, I really don't run that much anymore because I do supernatural. <laughs> But uh, one of my strategies was, and this is not just mine, it was one of our training strategies, is in a race is to always focus on the person kind of just ahead of you that's kind of maybe just a little bit uh, above your pace, but not too much, and to just try to get in front of them. And that, that carried me through so many races, right? To just, and that person was maybe going like a, a millisecond faster than me. And one of the visualizations I would use is I would tie a rope around my waist and tie my, that rope to their waist. And I would visualize uh. myself pulling myself forward to them, and then I surpass them, and then I tie my, my rope to the next person's waist. And in recovery, the addition I made to that in my mindset is, and now I'm going to pass the rope back to the person behind me who needs to be in mm. recovery, too.
2: There are so many beautiful things about that. I mean, the first one that comes to mind is not seeking uh, happiness in the future, but finding something in the present moment. Mm -hmm. Also being willing to help those who come behind
3: you. Exactly. Um,
2: And then the greatest one for me is, and it's a, a debate I've had with people who talk about positive mindsets where they're like, well you're just lying to your brain. Like you're you're just making something up when that's not the reality of the situation. And I always <laughs> like to say, like, well, the flip side of that is your brain is lying to you about your capabilities. So <laughs> I agree
3: with that. Right.
2: <laughs> right. Which lie do you want to yeah. take if that's the route you're gonna go, right?
3: One of the things and this is great, probably also being a therapist, I think, but, but I learned it in in my journey and then in also in marathon training when we encounter a problem counter pain we have a tendency if we're in a and we're in a negative mindset to be like that's a no i can't do it but i think with marathon training what i learned is it's not no it's how it's like changing my mindset to how do i get through it not that i can't get through it how do i get through it so if i shift my mindset to simply how could i get through it that's a totally different mindset it doesn't mean that we don't have limitations. We absolutely do. And I don't believe in running through injury. Like that's not what mm-hmm. I'm saying, but there's actually, we have so much more capabilities than we realize when we stop thinking that the smallest inconvenience or the smallest pain is a, is a no, right? When we think that's a no, like that's not a no. That's something that's a challenge or that's something that uh, we weren't expecting it. Right. Or it's like, Oh, we need to maybe, okay, maybe we have a moment of grief and maybe we have a moment of, I didn't expect that. And okay. How? Wait, then that opens our mind up and then we become problem solvers.
0: Well,
2: let me ask you this, because, you know, after when you become an adult, the opportunity to have mentors, coaches and teachers at your disposal is limited unless you go out and seek that for yourself. Right. Correct. Um, So in what ways do you help yourself cultivate and strengthen and train your mindset continuously as you get older?
3: That's a really interesting question. Well, I mean, I've stayed in therapy. I, I've been staying in therapy. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be honest. I mean, I don't know if I'll ever not be in therapy. Just, I'm one of those people who thinks it's just really helpful to be in a, in a state of relating to the solution. Not that I think everybody has to be, but that's just me. Even when I work with my clients, and as I do for myself, I do look for opportunities. If I can find someone in my life who's a little bit older or a little bit farther down the path, than me, I want that person in my life. So I'm just very direct with people. The same way I make friends. So I have a mentor in my life. I, I I call him my recovery dad. I met him on staff at a conference. I'm not even joking. Twelve years ago, and he just just struck me right. He just struck me as wise, and he kind of had the kind of recovery in his life principles and wisdom that I wanted. he's like, you know, he literally is my father's age. Can we just be friends? Can you? Can you? You know what I mean? Like, can I just like? Yeah. We hang out, you know, and that's what it is. And I still talk to him, you know, every other week to this day. And so I think finding those people or who have what you want, and asking, hey, can we have can we have a connection? I personally need kind of a board. I call it my board of advisors. I'm the CEO of my life, but I need a board of advisors, and I need these wise people who can see the things I can't quite see yet. I want to know that the people I have around me are, are going to help me see what I can't see. I think just like making friends, you can find these people everywhere if you're looking for them, if you're available to find them.
2: So I'm going to give you a long-winded soliloquy yeah. to lead to a question here that's yeah. wrapped around or wrapped yeah. around what you just said. Um, yeah. So for me currently in my life, there well, now it's one. The second one, because of COVID, it just wasn't safe. But I have a, one of my best friends who I think is one of the wisest human beings on the planet. Who mm. He's not a therapist, but he's someone who I can talk to who won't judge me and give me a different lens, right? Then I trust his wisdom. And the other person was, yeah. I had read a book called Everyday Zen uh, by this Buddhist teacher. And, it was a collection of her Dharma talks. And I thought to myself, like, I want to talk to this person. Yeah. But as I thought about it more, I realized, no, the person is, that I want to talk to is not her. It's the student who put together and recorded the Dharma talks. And it happened to be this, when I reached out, it was an 80-year-old philosophy professor who was retired. And emailed him out of the blue. And it started with an email exchange for months. And then before you knew it, we were meeting once a month just going for a walk and having lunch and talking. That's the closest I've ever gotten to therapy just because, one, within black community there's a stigma about going to see mm. a therapist and mental illness, yeah. right, or just mental wellness. Um, yeah. But then, two, the one time I was forced to see a therapist after my knee injury in college because the schools worried about my well-being Mm-hmm. It was someone who had never been through what I was experiencing in the moment. And she just kept saying to me, I know what you're going through. I know what you're going through. Until oh, I like, no. lost I lost my shit completely in the meeting and like kind of scared her a little bit um, mm-hmm. because she just wouldn't stop saying it. But I say yeah. all that to ask you as a therapist, and I know we're overgeneralizing here maybe a little bit, but how much of the fact that you've been through it makes you a better therapist?
3: <laughs> oh, no. Can not answer that question? Uh, can I I'm going to answer it in a different way, okay? Okay, um, well,
2: well maybe I can rephrase it. I no, no, I noticed fine. As, Okay. <laughs> you're fine. You're <laughs> fine.
3: You didn't do anything. I I let me just like I just don't know. I can't compare myself, right, to other people, but I can say that I didn't like what that therapist said to you because that's not if if that therapist hasn't been through it, then then she doesn't have a right to say that. That's just true, I think. But what I'll say is that I chose to specialize as a therapist in exactly the populations uh, that I am a part of. And I didn't have to do that. I could have chosen to treat anxiety and depression and and just things that, like, are not my thing, right? But I chose to specialize in eating disorders, you know, the family disease of addiction, right, and intergenerational trauma. And that's like, well, that's me. (laughs) Right. That's what I chose. And the reason I did that was a very conscious choice, which is that I really did want to pay it forward. I feel like I very much am a beneficiary, again, of the generosity of others and including people who weren't in recovery or who who didn't have those things. But it, it felt very important to me to be generative. You know, I don't have biological children, just to let you know. And so this is one way that I feel like I can be, you know, pass it forward or pay it forward. And I'm very open about that, and that's not all therapists are. I think some of this, this is why I have trouble comparing myself to other therapists, is just simply that it's so dependent on what feels comfortable for the therapist and the client. Like, some clients don't want to know shit about their therapist. They're like, I don't care about you, and that's fine. I don't want to know anything about you. I just want help from you. And if you're good at helping me, that's all I need to know, right? And then you have other people who are like, it really matters to me to be with a therapist who has been where I've been in some in some sense or who like share some of my identities in some sense and I think again it just kind of depends on what really works for the client so I can just see for myself that the people who like working with me right back like they they must like working with someone who's open about having been through that stuff I don't obviously disclose details but they know i'm in recovery and and they know that you know i come from a dysfunctional system but that's a, that's about it they don't know super lots of details and that seems to help right. them right it seems to help them feel safer or open up more or just be like yeah cat gets it cuz cat you know cat has an eating disorder history
2: now, yeah. that was a, that was a great way to handle that question
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm not going to come in here and be like i'm fucking much better than other therapists <laughs>
2: Well, in your journey of recovery, even thinking about present day, what's been the most difficult obstacle and how do you go at that? How do you handle it?
3: So I've been eating disorder behavior-free for twelve over 12 years now, and I think the first five or six years of that, I had this false belief that, wow, being being behavior-free is going to, like, really fix it all for me. And what I mean by that is, like, it will erase the pain of those first 14 years of my life. And I think what I'm finding as I'm getting older and my life is only becoming better and only becoming more stable, right, and only becoming more abundant in terms of my relationships and my life, you know, what I'm finding is actually that means the pain of those first 14 years is becoming more apparent to me. I'm actually able to face it because I'm not using any of those, uh, those numbing, I'm not using any numbing behaviors. Well, not any, I mean, I'm on TikTok, but like, you know, I'm not using any of those dysfunctional addictive behaviors that I was using, and so in fact, what that means is I have to look my trauma right in the face now, like I bought a house this year as my first time buying a house, and I think in some ways, my body is like, "Wow, this is maybe the first time in your life passed that you would truly feel stable and settled and so mm-hmm. now that you feel stable and settled, guess what? Here come right. those memories."
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> so-
3: it's not an obstacle right I think it's more an we call it an, another fucking growth opportunity um, right. so that's the thing that I keep confronting and I think just trying to stay available to it and just be gentle with myself that like that is the healing process and I don't get to just erase the first forty years of my life without dire consequences to my mental health
2: and with your answer to the previous question it, it shows that as well as your answer to this current question and it's And what I mean is is the word respect, right? Respect for others, respect for yourself and what you're going through. And it -hmm. seems as though you were able to connect with others, collaborate with them. And this level of respect, and maybe I might be making an assumption, maybe you felt like you hadn't had it before. Um, What does respect mean to you and how does it
3: influence your life? Mm. I think respect is what I mean by that is sort of being humanizing towards the person in front of you rather than dehumanizing. Respect to me has to do with I'm not othering you. I'm not projecting on you from my own ego and my own trauma and my own bullshit. I'm seeing you for you and I'm validating your existence and who you are. So that's what I mean by respect. I think it's really, really important to have people in your life who treat you that way because you're going to have plenty of people in your life who don't. Um, that's just that's just part of being human as part of living in this world that we are going to be othered we are going to be disrespected when that is the case though with the primary people in our lives if we're surrounded by the primary people in our lives by people who are dehumanizing us or disrespecting us in that way that that only see us through this lens of either their ego or their projections or their trauma that is so dehumanizing and it's so hard then for us to see ourselves for who we really are so we really need I think to to be in loving humanizing relationship with our primary people in order for us to grow I don't think we can be shamed into truly taking up abundant space and taking up abundant selves I don't think that's how that happens so I think we need to have people in our lives who are like I respect you I might have things to say to you that are hard to hear but I will say it to you in a way that's humanizing and respectful
2: no, it's one of the things that um, I won't say I struggle with, but I uh, constantly keep at the forefront of my mind when dealing with my my sons, mm-hmm. especially my eldest, because like, you know, as a parent, you want to say like, I've been down this road, you don't want to go this way, but at the same time, respecting that like, your journey is different than mine, and, I, and whatever it is that I want for you, it may not be what you want for yourself, and I need to respect who you are as a person, but I'm not going to love you any less. And it also doesn't mean that I'm not going to share with you when I think uh when I disapprove of something or need to share something tough with you. So, I like how you put that cuz that's something that I is constantly on my mind when especially when talking with my eldest.
3: Yeah. Um, it's a re- it's really hard. I mean, I think, you know, these are really ch- it's challenging. <laughs> to yeah. to, stay, to stay in the place of just being to see, really see someone in that human place, because we're all, all of us have wounds, all of us, and all of us have fears. So sometimes, right, when we see someone like, and we're, and we interact with them in a less humanizing way, we're actually loving them, but it's from fear, or we're actually loving them and we want to protect them, but the way it's coming out, right, may feel distancing to them. So it's very hard to stay human. It's very, very challenging.
2: Well, Kat, I want to end with the same question I've been ending all these interviews with, which is, yeah. For whoever's listening, who is on whatever journey they're on, from your experiences thus far on this planet, what what is something you think they should hear from you?
3: The main thing I think I'm about, it's like if I could, you know, share a message, is simply I really do think that recovery is possible, whatever that may be, recovery from shame recovery from self-loathing recovery from isolation recovery from addiction recovery from eating disorders recovery from whatever it may be and the way that i think that that happens at least in my experience um and what i've seen around me is to be open to healing relationship with others who see you as a human being and to be willing to have those relationships be open to those relationships it is possible you know i think there's so much hopelessness that happens when people are in that much pain i want to be a hope merchant that's what i see I, you know there it, it is totally possible and it involves other people
1: was i lying nope she drops so many gems and nuggets of of emotional intelligence intellectual intelligence and just genuine sincerity of humanness so, Kat, I want to just say thank you before I even go on any further. And there's a bigger thank you coming, and I'll, I'll get to that, but there's only so much that I can pull because otherwise the episode will end up being me talking more than you did because you gave me so much to think about. So as I went through and listened to this, I pulled some nuggets that I thought were something that needs to be reiterated and reaffirmed for anyone listening. And the first has to do with what you called your kernel of resilience to give yourself the courage and trust in yourself to make the leap to go to boarding school and have that be your idea. Do you know how much strength and power and resilience and determination that takes as a 14-year-old to say, I can step out on my own and I got this? Many of us struggle with that still today in our adult lives. But if cat's an example, if you know that kernel of resilience is there, plant it, water it, allow it to grow and have trust and faith in it, That you're going to be okay. Not only are you going to be okay, but you're going to thrive and blossom and grow into this beautiful plant that will share your gift with the rest of the world. So if you feel that little kernel, no matter how small it is, act on it. It could be a defining moment that changes everything. And like for Kat, it led her to meet people, mentors, teachers like Kim, like her English teacher, who were there to be supportive When you follow your instincts and you make that move, you never know who you're going to meet, who's going to cross your path in your journey, and who's going to be there to support you and not judge you. And Kat, I really, really hope. I truly hope. And if you haven't done so, I hope you do now. You've reached out to Kim or that English teacher and at least had a phone call because I could hear it in your voice what they meant to you. And one of the people I still had contact with after I graduated high school that was in my life constantly, they're not here anymore, and I wish they were. After hearing your story, I wish I could just call them up and say thank you. But to the rest of you, open yourselves up to all of the possibilities of relationships. We often don't see ourselves the way others see us, and we often treat ourselves worse than anyone else. Allow someone to treat you with grace and respect and dignity because you deserve it, and I'm glad that Kat got that. And to piggyback off that, maybe you're that person. Maybe you're the person who can be that foundation for someone to grow from, who can be that supportive individual in someone's life when they've never had it before. You see, Cad didn't talk about Kim or her English teacher doing anything above and beyond being human, giving her space to be who she was, giving her a moment to have a friend, a mentor. You never know what your hello how you doing, is everything okay, will mean to somebody. Even something as simple as a smile can change the outcome of someone's day or save their life. Yes, we all go through things ourselves. But remember, the other 7 billion people on this planet are also dealing with their own stuff too. And your hello, your smile might be the thing they need to continue on. And that's in alignment with what Kat called passing the rope. Such a brilliant visual. I truly believe this. Coming up in graduate school, the route I wanted to go, most of the people in my field did not specialize in what I wanted to do. And I had nobody, I mean nobody, to turn to. The one person I thought would be helpful for that, who was in that area of specialization, was in Canada. And just, I couldn't get a hold of him. And when I did or shot an email, I never got a response. So I navigated this journey on my own. And that's led to me being invited to talk to a lot of our field about all the different things that I've done. And the thing I do for every single talk, whether recorded, Zoom or in person, my last slide is my personal email and my personal cell phone number. And I tell people, reach out if you've got any questions. Let me help be a guiding light for you because I never had one. And it's tough navigating this journey in the dark. And inevitably, 99% never reach out. But there always is that 1% that hits me up. And if any of you are listening, you'll verify. I always respond and take the time to pass the rope back. When you've made it out of something as Kat has and you've progressed on your journey, yes, you have blazed the path for others to follow. But it's a lot easier for them to take that first step when you turn back and offer that olive branch. All of you have a way in which you can help someone else, whether you were helped or not. Don't forget those that come behind you and i think to me cat that is one of the greatest things about you you didn't forget and i don't think you ever will i think you'll be helping people until your last breath and that is beyond admirable and inspirational in your words it's human what we should strive to be as human beings a collective community of one the last thing i want to say about cat and the thing i respect most about her was her first words in the podcast, when I said, how you doing? And she says, I'm OK. That level of honesty with self and the ability to have the strength and vulnerability to be honest with others in any particular moment is something I strive to be every day that I still struggle with, especially as someone who sees themselves as a provider for their family and the kids I coach on the football team or the clients that I have that I work with or. Any other thing that I do, whether it's talking on stage, having to be that rock, even if it's just a perception of my own is taxing. And rarely when asked that question, do I say I'm not doing all right or I'm just OK. It's always I'm good or I'm doing great. And just those few words sets the tone for a lack of honesty within self, with others, which then leads to a lack of respect for the situation at hand that you're actually dealing with. And so Kat, thank you for being that example for me. I will never answer that question dishonestly again. So your homework. And Kat, I'm gonna give you homework specifically if you haven't already done it. Reach out to Kim or that English teacher. At least see if they're willing to have a phone call with you. I've done this homework because as soon as I heard Kat say that and also talk about how she seeks out mentors in her adult life, And I mentioned the 80-year-old philosophy professor. I haven't seen him in two years. And the reason is when COVID hit and everything was locked up and he's an older population that's more susceptible, I didn't want to risk it. And even as things kind of loosened back up, he still was a little weary. And I won't say that it was out of sight, out of mind, because I think about him often. I just didn't make the effort myself to reach out and say hello the way I wish I would have. So I literally sent him an email today hoping that now is at least a good time that I can go see him and we can start back to our monthly walks around Claremont McKenna College sitting at the pond after lunch and just having philosophical life conversations. And even if he's not ready, I have a computer at my disposal and I plan on continuing to email him. So thank you for that, Kat. But for everyone else, here's two options. You can do both, either or none. It's up to you. Option one, talk to a stranger. Ask them how their day's going. Give them a smile. Spark a conversation. And give them space for them to be themselves and treat them with the human decency, dignity, and courtesy that they deserve, that you desire as well. And option two, reach out to someone you really respect, that you value their life philosophy and opinions, and ask if you can become friends and maybe just start with a cup of tea. I hope you take me up on that homework, cat. I hope my friend responds. And I hope all of you choose one of the options. I appreciate you. Thanks for listening and much love. Always
0: be grateful for adversity for it forces the human spirit to grow. For surely the human character is formed, not in the absence of difficulty, but in our response to difficulty.
1: Thank you for listening to Doc's Daily Dose. I truly appreciate you. The ability to be honest and show strength and vulnerability doesn't happen without you pressing play. If you've got any suggestions, any ideas, or simply want to help make this show bigger and better, at the end of the show notes here, please feel free to donate and support Doc's Daily Dose. If you've got any questions that you want me to answer on the podcast, well, hit me up. A simple email, coachdoc at muchlovealways.com. Don't forget to sign up for our newsletter on muchlovealways.com and check out
2: anything else on the website. Again, I'm truly thankful for you. Much love always.